The fetal heart rate is controlled by various integrated physiological mechanisms, most importantly by a balance of parasympathetic and sympathetic nerve impulses. Intrapartum, fetal bradycardia may be in direct response to an evolving or an acute hypoxic event that can be tachycystole, uterine rupture, or placental abruption. Antepartum, excluding acute events like maternal trauma, which could lead to an acute hypoxic episode, most fetal bradyarrhythmias will be non-hypoxia related. We recently evaluated and cared for a patient at 23 weeks gestation with a completely incidental finding of a fetal heart rate of 90 at her routine prenatal visit. Now, this was heard on handheld Doppler, and then it was quickly confirmed by bedside ultrasound in the clinic. So she was quickly sent to labor and delivery for evaluation. On arrival to L&D, we confirmed that the fetal heart rate was now at 70, and this was confirmed with M-mode on bedside ultrasound. Now, there was no evidence of fetal hydropes, no evidence of maternal injury, no maternal connective tissue disease, and there was normal amniotic fluid. And there was completely normal fetal movement seen on ultrasound. So I thought, man, that's a great podcast topic because it's a good educational piece. So what are the possible causes of antepartum non-hypoxia-related fetal bradyarrhythmia? And what's the workup? And what's this whole issue of the fetal long QT syndrome? And when is delivery recommended? We're going to cover these questions and a lot more in this episode. So hang out with us as we cover non-hypoxic fetal antepartum bradycardia. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's well known that the fetal heart rate in the normal fetus decreases during gestation from about a mean of 175 beats per minute at about 10 weeks to about 138 beats per minute on average by 40 weeks. This phenomenon is believed to be attributed to the increased dominance of the parasympathetic nervous system on heart rate control as gestation progresses. Remember, of course, that the normal fetal heart rate is defined as a rate between 110 and 160 beats per minute. Fetal bradyarrhythmia is generally defined as a sustained heart rate that's less than 110, with severe fetal bradycardia or agonal being any fetal heart rate that's less than 70. Brady arrhythmia can range from mild to serious, depending on gestational age, the underlying cause, and each fetus's unique condition, including any associated complications. Fetal arrhythmias as a whole are pretty rare, complicating an estimated 1-2% to 2 of all pregnancies. But for Brady arrhythmias in particular, the reported prevalence has been published to be a bit higher, at around 3-5%. up to 5%. Even though we're going to go through all the possible etiologies of this, isolated, meaning it's non-hypoxia related and there's no associated hydropes, isolated bradycardia is thought to reflect simple sinus bradycardia due to simple immaturity of the cardiac conduction system. 
Simple immaturity of the cardiac conducting system is what accounts for simple and isolated, otherwise uncomplicated, fetal sinus bradycardia. And that's the one that's associated with the best prognosis. But sinus bradycardia is just one of four different categories of bradyarrhythmia. So we're going to go into each of these four different categories coming up next. But we've already alluded to the first one, which is the most benign, which is sinus bradycardia. So let's get into that and the three other types coming up next. Okay, four main categories of fetal bradyarrhythmia, and we already alluded to the first, simple sinus bradycardia. Remember, this is a lower than normal fetal heart rate, so it's less than 110 beats per minute. But the rhythm is still regular, meaning that the electrical signal still transmits from the atria to the ventricles of the heart in a predictable fashion. Sinus bradycardia can be temporary and can occur during an ultrasound exam when pressure is applied to the uterus or at times of external cephalic version. This is typically temporary and self-limited, and it's because of the parasympathetic influence on the SA node that can mature prior to the sympathetic nerve, or it can become a type of vagal response to that pressure, like at times of external cephalic version. All to say that simple sinus bradycardia is due to the natural immaturity of the nervous system and the fetal conduction system. Sinus bradycardia can occur when the sinus node is also damaged or just not functioning properly, and this results in slow signals to the heart muscles. Mild sinus bradycardia typically needs no treatment at all if there are no other abnormalities present. Of course, sinus brady is diagnosed once other causes of bradycardia have been excluded and the workup is otherwise negative. And we're going to talk about that workup in just a moment. But just remember that the first type of fetal bradyarrhythmia is the most benign and that's simple sinus bradycardia. The second of the four types of fetal bradyarrhythmia is AV block, or more specifically, first-degree heart block. This occurs when the timing of conduction or the transmission of electrical impulses between the upper and lower chambers of the heart is prolonged, but still there. Typically, no treatment is needed if there's no other abnormalities present. So remember that first-degree heart block means that every signal still goes through from the upper to the lower chambers. It's just prolonged in getting there. That brings us to our third of the four types, and that's partial heart block. This is also called second-degree heart block. This occurs when the electrical impulses from the atria are intermittently blocked from reaching the ventricles. These are known as dropped or skipped beats. The result is a slower and sometimes irregular heartbeat. Now, a rare but potentially lethal cause of this secondary heart block is the fetal long QT interval syndrome. And we're going to talk about this in much more detail later on in the episode, but just want to put that bug in your ear that second-degree heart block may be related to a potentially lethal issue called the long fetal QT interval syndrome. This specific cardiac conduction defect, again, could be very serious. And lastly, there's complete heart block, which is the most severe. This is called third-degree heart block. We're going to summarize all these in just a moment. But remember, four main types, sinus bradycardia is first, then comes first-degree heart block, then there's second-degree heart block that we just covered, and that brings us to complete heart block, which is the most morbid. 
This occurs when none of the electrical impulses from the atria reach the ventricles, while another natural pacemaker can take over to generate electrical signals for the ventricles. It usually is much slower and unreliable as a heart rate pattern. Complete heart block is the most common cause of persistent slow fetal heart rate, and it also is life-threatening because it places the fetus at risk for hydrops fetalis and heart failure. The condition is usually associated with either a structural fetal heart defect or maternal autoimmune disease like lupus. So that's a clinical pearl. If there is complete heart block that's persistent, it's either a structural fetal heart defect or maternal autoimmune disease like lupus. All right, podcast family, let's stop there for a minute and let's just recap these four main categories. First is fetal sinus bradycardia. In other words, it's a slow heart rate, but it's regular and it typically is not that severe. And this can be just regular immaturity of the fetal conduction system in the heart. Then there's AV block or first degree heart block, which is the signals are still getting from the atria to the ventricles, but it's just a little bit prolonged. Then there's second-degree heart block, which is an intermittent block of the signal from the atria to the ventricles, and that's marked by dropped or skipped beats. And there's a special kind of second-degree heart block we're going to talk about in just a minute, which is called the fetal long QT interval syndrome that could be deadly. And then there's complete heart block, where none of the impulses connect from the atria to the ventricles, and that's usually related to either a structural fetal heart defect or maternal autoimmune disease like lupus because of the autoantibodies that attack the fetal conduction system of the heart. We're going to get into all of this more in just a moment. We're just laying out the four main categories here at the start. Now that we've covered the four main types, I want to get into a little bit more detail to a specific type of second-degree heart block. Second-degree, remember, that's the one that intermittently blocks the signal from the atria to the ventricles, resulting in dropped or skipped beats. And that is the fetal long QT interval syndrome, because that's a very unique condition. So let's cover that now. Okay, congenital fetal long QT interval syndrome. That's a lot of words, but it potentially could be bad. So we're going to get into the workup of all of this in a moment, but just remember that the congenital fetal long QT interval syndrome is a big one to watch out for. Fetal long QT syndrome is associated with complex arrhythmias, including torsade de Ponts and second-degree AV block. This is much more rare, but it's also much more dangerous. A prenatal diagnosis of the fetal long QT interval syndrome can be suspected given the fetal echo findings of a short ventricular relaxation time due to extremely prolonged refractory period. Notice we said fetal echo, so that's a clinical pearl. This requires fetal echocardiogram for diagnosis, and that's why it needs MFM and pediatric cardiology input. So most cases of fetal bradyarrhythmias are going to have a fetal echo. We're going to talk about the workup in a minute. It starts with M mode and then gets into fetal echo. And then there's other tests that we can get. But just remember that the fetal long QT interval syndrome requires fetal echo for diagnosis. This issue of congenital long QT syndrome is an inherited ion channel disorder caused by gene mutations that encode for cardiac ion channels. The incidence of inherited long QT syndrome in the general population is about 1 in 2,000 or 0.05%. Remember said it's pretty rare, but it's also dangerous. It's strongly associated with cardiomyopathies, channelopathies, and sudden death of all ages, even in utero death. 
sudden death results from susceptibility to Dressard de Ponts, a highly lethal ventricular tachyarrhythmia. Now, little is known about LQTS, that's long QT syndrome in the fetus, but an important recent study suggests that this condition, the long QT interval, listen to this, may account for nearly 10% of otherwise unexplained fetal demises. That was published in 2013 in JAMA. So let that sink in for just a minute, right? We have a stillbirth, which is heartbreaking, and we always offer fetal autopsy, which is the right thing to do, and checking of the placenta, which is the right thing to do, and checking for antifossil women antibodies, which is the right thing to do. But sometimes all of these tests come back negative. But one of the things that we can't actually confirm is that maybe this was a fetal cardiac arrhythmia that happened in utero. We're finding out that this actually does happen, and that can be because of the fetal long QT syndrome. Again, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. But again, I point you to that GEM article from 2013 with the lead author being Crotti, that's C-R-O-T-T-I. Now list that in our list of references. But it's just intriguing and it's amazing how much now we're finding out where otherwise things are unexplained. Maybe we can narrow that down to these potential cardiac arrhythmias that are diagnoses of exclusion. The diagnosis of long fetal QT syndrome can be made either through a genetic test or through a detailed fetal cardiac evaluation. Mutations in cardiac ion channels can be detected in about 75% of patients with clinical diagnosis of long QT syndrome. The most common acquired form is autosomal dominant and is solely a cardiac disorder. Genetic testing for several known mutations that cause this syndrome is actually commercially available. There's also an autosomal recessive type that's associated with deafness and a poor prognosis. So remember, we're talking about diagnosis specifically of this long QT syndrome condition. And you can do that by genetics, or of course, you can do that also by fetal echo. Now, there's also been some reports in the literature of using a very specialized test that hasn't really caught on because it's expensive and it's hard to do. But I'm going to tell you here because we're all about medical education. But there is a test called a magnetocardiogram, an MCG. Yeah, go look that up. MCG is a magnetic analog of the EKG. Unlike the fetal EKG, which is strongly attenuated by electrical resistance by the fetal skin, the fetal MCG shows relatively high signal quality. The efficacy of fetal magnetocardiogram is supported by a substantial literature base, but it's hard to do, it's expensive, and there's not a lot of centers who do this. So it has very limited clinical use. Plus, standard fetal echo with Dopplers is the main way to go, and most people are comfortable by doing that. Well, I think that's enough on the fetal long QT syndrome. The short of it is, it can be bad, it requires fetal echo, and it's something to keep in mind. That's why you should always involve your pediatric cardiologist whenever persistent fetal bradycardia that's not hypoxia-related has been diagnosed antepartum. Now, if you remember earlier on, we also talked about maternal autoimmune antibodies causing complete heart block. So let's cover that next. For maternal autoantibodies, typically that's anti-Rho or anti-Law, otherwise known as anti-SSA or anti-SSB. So let's cover these antibodies in a bit more detail. 
autoantibodies directed against Rho, which is SSA, or Law, which is SSB. These are autoantigens that were originally identified in patients with Sjogren's syndrome and systemic lupus erythematosus. Subsequent studies have shown that anti-Rho or anti-SSA antibodies may be present in patients with other autoimmune diseases, including systemic sclerosis, idiopathic inflammatory myopathies, interstitial lung disease, mixed connective tissue disease, and primary biliary cholangitis. It can also be found in rheumatoid arthritis patients. Additionally, anti-Rho, remember that's the SSA antibodies, with or without anti-law antibodies, identify pregnant women who are at increased risk of having a child with neonatal lupus syndrome. Anti-law antibodies are rarely detected in the absence of anti-Rho antibodies. So that's a clinical pearl. Next, let's take a look at other possible etiologies of fetal non-hypoxia bradycardia. Remember, we also talked about fetal cardiac structural defects, and that is a big clinical pearl because anytime that there's fetal bradyarrhythmia, remember, you're going to get that fetal echo to look for any structural defect. And if you find one, then that's a big clinical marker and a red flag. More than half of fetuses with structural cardiac defects will have a chromosomal abnormality. So even if they have cell-free DNA that's negative, it's still an indication to search a fetal chromosome analysis with microarray. Because once again, cell-free DNA is only looking for a very limited number of things. Trisomy 18, 21, 13, and then sex chromosome abnormalities. So remember, fetal bradycardia with an M mode that confirms it gets a fetal Doppler uh, and echo, and if that is confirmed to have a structural cardiac abnormality, pursue a karyotype. Now, for those that are found to not have a fetal cardiac structural abnormality, some experts recommend a fetal MRI to look for higher brain centers that may be causing aberrant signals to the heart. So once again, just ruling out all other possibilities. So now we've gone from the heart itself to higher brain centers. So remember, M mode is first to confirm fetal bradyarrhythmia. That triggers a fetal echo with Doppler, and then that would figure a chromosome analysis of their structural heart abnormalities. And if there isn't, some would advocate for fetal MRI to rule out any higher brain center abnormalities that may not be detected with ultrasound. Remember we said that that's the expert opinion, the level C, of some authorities, not all. Because the truth is, if you have a detailed anatomical scan of the intracranial structures and there's no gross abnormalities, then a fetal MRI is basically low yield. All right, podcast family, hang in there because now we're coming towards the end. And the last thing to cover, of course, is potential treatment and prognosis. Treatment will, of course, depend on the etiology. In general, as a prognostic factor, those fetuses that have a baseline fetal heart rate greater than or equal to 70 have no associated cardiac structural abnormalities and do not have hydropes fatalis have the best prognosis. In some cases, maternal administration of medications may help by transplacental passage to restart the regular rhythm of the heart. Beta stimulants like ritodrin and tributylene have been reported to be effective transplacental treatments for fetal A. V block, and they may indeed increase the fetal ventricular rate by 10 to 20%, and they may reverse hydropes as well. But these medications are not perfect. For example, although tributylene does increase the fetal heart rate, it does not restore the coordination of aortoventricular conduction, so the fetus may experience less than adequate ventricular filling. 
Maternal tolerance to these medications also decreases over time, and early delivery may become necessary if hydropes develops. If the case of fetal bradyarrhythmia is congenital heart block secondary to maternal autoimmune disorders, then steroids offer some help. Corticosteroids such as dex or betamethasone are often used to stop the inflammation and correct the autoimmune-related injury on the conduction system. Transplacental administration of steroids is also effective for the treatment of myocarditis and it helps improve fetal cardiac function. And of course, then there's the old standard of digitalis, DIG. DIG can be used to strengthen cardiac output and it has a long history of safety for these fetal arrhythmias. Now here's a quick clinical pearl. If second trimester fetal bradycardia spontaneously resolves, this still requires post-delivery evaluation. That fetal long QT syndrome that we talked about before can't be excluded by a normal fetal heart rate or a reactive non-stress test after 32 weeks of gestation because that gets lost in the variability of the strip. The findings of transient bradycardia in the second trimester do raise a suspicion of fetal long QT syndrome, and the data suggests that even if the fetal heart rate is normal in the third trimester and the non-stress tests are reactive, which are all very good news, newborns with a history of bradycardia in the second trimester, even if they spontaneously resolved, should be considered for a neonatal echo just to make sure that the congenital long QT syndrome has been fully evaluated. And lastly, some cases of fetal bradycardia do progress and deteriorate. That's why repeat ultrasounds and frequent endopartum fetal surveillance are key in these cases. Early delivery is needed if fetal hydropes develops in the presence of fetal AV block. As our final parting clinical pearl, yes, there has been some attempts at in utero fetal pacing through the maternal abdomen. Yeah, but that does not work well. Those success rates have been close to zero. They just haven't been very successful. However, cardiac pacing after delivery, neonatal pacing, is very successful, especially in neonates who have no other comorbidities. Podcast family, now that we're at the end of our episode, a quick word about what happened with our patient. She was given a dose of steroids for fetal lung maturity in case the bradycardia deteriorated, and she was observed overnight the next morning for her fetal echo. Oddly enough, the fetal heart rate was back to completely normal, and there was no fetal cardiac abnormalities, and there was no other structural abnormalities noted with the child. So because it spontaneously resolved, no further testing was done. Is that wild or what? Now, we cannot rule out that there was some therapeutic benefit to that betamethasone that was given for fetal lung maturity. Maybe that betamethasone took away some mild inflammation or some mild block that was happening, blocking the conduction between the atrium and the ventricles. Who knows? There's no way to know, no way to prove that. But it's interesting that she did get one dose, just 12 milligrams of Celestone, and the next morning she spontaneously converted with no other issues. Now, the baby will be evaluated again at delivery, but how wild is that? So, again, this just happened recently. We don't know if it's recurred, but as of right now, it is a case of spontaneous, non-hypoxia-related fetal bradycardia that spontaneously resolved. That brings us to a wrap. We have covered non-hypoxia-related antepartum fetal bradycardia. That's a title right there. Anyway, I hope this podcast was helpful and insightful for you. We've walked through the potential workup, potential causes, and even the postnatal management of this condition. 
As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.